Bienvenidos and welcome to the next installment of Lead Media Programming from Studio 54, campus of California State University, San Bernardino, the digital media platform for inspired educators, leaders, and community activists and advocates taking our message directly to the people, to the gente. Thank you for sharing our common interest in the analysis, discussion, critique, dissemination, and commitment to the educational issues that impact Latinos. I'm your host, Dr. Enrique Murillo Jr., and this episode is a syndicated replay from season nine of Lead Summit 2018. The theme that year was Viva la Mujer, and the strands in design of the summit that year were all planned and led by the Mujeres of Lead. As a group, Latina females start school significantly behind other females, and without proper support and intervention, are never able to completely catch up to their peers. Latinas graduate from high school at lower rates than any other major subgroup and are also the least likely of all women to obtain and complete a college degree. This capstone presentation entitled Viva la Mujer, Nosotras las Madrinas was offered by the past and at the time current lead events honorary chairpersons, all strong advocates, activists themselves who had made significant contributions to our community. Affectionately known as Madrinas de Honor, the distinguished panelists of Mujeres had drawn from decades of their personal and professional lives to discuss and shed light on their role, actions, and journey, working, empowering, and struggling towards social and economic justice, diversity, equity, educational labor, equality, civic, political, human rights, and societal change. Continue and enjoy the full value and complexity of this episode. We extend our appreciation to our lead sponsors and partners, planners, volunteers, speakers, panelists, production team, affiliates, and all our town hall chapters. We commend them for lifting their voice and for uplifting the plight of Latinos and education. Thank you, gracias, Tlazucamate. Now, this is our capstone, which means it's the the last little granito de arena, the, the last thing for today. Of course, um, it, what we're doing here is raising awareness, raising consciousness, right? Trying to get people to step in and to get involved. So at this point, I, it's my great honor to be up here with this very distinguished group of mujeres, right? Y que vive la mujer. I, can, I, don't, I don't get tired of saying that. Okay, we're going to turn over this featured capstone panel to the capable hands of Patricia Aguilera, who serves as a student services professional for, she is the Federal Work Study and the California Dream Grant and Loan Coordinator here at Cal State University San Bernardino in the Office of Financial Aid and Scholarships. She has a master's degree in public administration. Patty, all yours. Thank you, Enrique. Good afternoon. Um, Enrique, uh, my name is Patricia Aguilera, and I am a financial aid counselor here at the university. I'm one of the long-term, I think, university's employees. I've been here almost a, a 30 years, and I stand, still stand here before you. 
I have also had the distinct privilege to serve on the lead um, hospitality and planning committees with a great group of individuals and volunteers. Um, this afternoon, um, I will be serving as your moderator for the capstone presentation, Viva la Mujer, Nosotras las ma mas ma I'm sorry, Madrinas. Anyway, I am privileged to be uh, here among this beautiful group of women and sharing their stories today with you. We'll be um, going over um, uh, various questions and at the end of each presentation, uh, we'll have a few questions um, for the audience to, to give us, okay? So basically, um, Latino girls and women make up one in five females in the United States and by 2060 are predicted to form nearly one third of the total female population. As a fast growing and influential constituency, Latinas have made significant strides and progress in a number of areas. Yet, progress has been extremely slow and there is a long way to go to fully close gen gender, class, educational, and racial disparities. Latinas are incredibly entrepreneurial, and as the number rate of Latino-owned businesses has increased eight times that of men-owned business, yet remains significantly underrepresented, especially among Fortune 500 companies. In terms of economic security, the disparities are leaving a growing portion still likely to live in poverty, and a single heads of households still earning less in the labor market. For decades too, Latinas have been more likely to lack health coverage among Americans uninsured and still have the least access to health care of any group of women. In terms of civic and political leadership, Latinas have a rich history of leadership in our communities, but remain underrepresented in all levels of government. As a group of Latina females start school significantly behind other females and without proper support and intervention are never able to completely catch up to their peers. Latinos graduate from high schools at lower rates and in any major subgroup and are the least likely of all women to obtain and complete a college degree. This capstone presentation will be offered by past and current lead events honorary chairpersons all strong advocates and activists themselves who have made significant contributions to our community, affectionately known as our Madrinas. The distinguished panelists of Mujeres will draw from decades of their personal and professional lives to discuss and shed light on their role, actions, and journey, working, empowering, and struggling towards social and economic justice, diversity, equity, educational labor equality, civic, political, human rights, and social change. Therefore, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the following panelists. Our first 2010 inaugural lead summit madrina, Sylvia Mendez. Our 2011 Lead Summit Madrina, Dr. Judy Rodriguez Watson. Our 2011 Inaugural Federal Educativa Madrina, Trini Gomez. Our 2000. 15 Inaugural Global Lead Summit Madrina, Dr. Ellen 
Riojas Clark. Got it. <laughs> Our 2015 Feria Educativa Madrina, Lillian H Esther Hernandez. I miss Josie over here. I'm sorry, I missed one. My apologies. Our 2013 um, Lead Summit Madrina, Honorable Josie Gonzalez. And now, last but not least, our 2017 Lead Summit Madrina, Honorable Eloise Gomez Reyes. Okay, so we're gonna start first with Sylvia Mendez. You are a civil rights champion, the oldest daughter of Gonzalo Mendez, a Mexican immigrant, and Felicitas Mendez, a Puerto Rican who fought so fought so you and your brothers could have an equal education. Mendez versus Westminster was a 1947 federal court case that challenged the practice of school segregation, and as a young girl, you were the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit. In this ruling, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held that forced segregation of Mexican-American students into separate Mexican remedial schools was unconstitutional and unlawful. This is a long landmark historical decision and as paramount requisite in the American system of public education and social equality. It must be open to all children by unified school association regarded regardless of lineage. Madrina Silvia, as you continue with the legacy left by your parents to campaign for education, encouraging students to stay in school and to ensure that the importance of Mendes versus Westminster in American history, history will not be forgotten, will you please tell us about the role your mother and other community women played during the landmark desegregation case that bears your name? Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. When I started this, <laughs> I'm so glad to be here and see all these students that are here today. Anyway, I have um, to tell you that there was there is a book, 62 pages of all the women that were involved in Mendes, and I'm not gonna speak about all of them. I'm just gonna speak about three of the women, and the three women that have inspired me. One was my tia Soledad Bidari, that I always said she made a, a Rosa Parks stand before Rosa Parks, because when we went to that school, and we were right there, getting ready to be admitted, and the clerk said, Miss Vidari, you can leave your children here, but your brother's kids will have to go to the Mexican school. My, my cousins, because you all know we all come in all colors, don't we? My cousins had blonde hair, almost blue eyes, and, and the lady said, you can leave your children here, but your brother's kids will have to go to the Mexican school. And what did my tia do? My tia Soledad Vidari, Mendez Vidari, she said, I am not leaving my children here. If you won't take my brother's kids, I am not leaving my children here, and I am taking them to the Mexican school. So she is one of my heroes. She took us home that day and told my father, and that's when he started fighting the case. So that's my number one, uh, one of my number one persons. The other person that I have always admired in the Mendes case, aside from all these other women that are in this book, was Miss Guzman. Miss Guzman was a lady in Santana that was fighting to get her child into a white school, really. 
and she had even hired a lawyer, but her lawyer failed her. Her lawyer failed her in getting uh, Billy into a white school, but she did join the Mendes case and eventually uh, got him into a white school. But she had started all by herself, just going to the, speaking to the superintendent and everybody, trying to get her child there, even hired a lawyer, which she wasn't able to do. The third person that I have admired and who to me is my hero is my mother. <laughs> my mother, when my father decided to fight this case, because he wanted to, uh, he wanted to be a farmer when we moved to Westminster, as you all know the story by now. Uh, my mother is the one that had to run the farm and take care of all the 14 braceros, do all the cooking, take care of the packing house, so my father could be out there. But aside from that, they, they, uh, she organized uh, a committee for, for all the children that was called, uh, I have it here, right here. And it was the Parents Association of Mexican American Children. And they would meet every week trying to decide how are we gonna fight this case. And it was everybody, all the women, all the men there in Westminster, joined in and would go to this meeting and they were trying to decide how we were gonna fight. It wasn't until they found Marcus that decided let's make this a class action suit for everybody. So I've always uh, known that my mother was a very important part in Mendes. To me, my mother's the one that, that I have to give the credit for me being here today because when she was dying in 1997, she said, Silvia, somebody has to go out there and tell the story about the Latinos, how they have always been so brave, how, how we have always wanted the best for our children. You need to go tell the story because nobody knew about it in 1996. Very few people knew. And she's the one that said, Silvia, you have to go out there and start talking about it. And it was her that inspired me to go out there and start talking about uh, the Mendes case because she knew that it was part of history and it was part of, of our culture, the Latinos, how we have always fought for equality and justice and how we always wanted the best education for our children. So I would say that she is my champion woman in Mendes versus Westminster. Thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you, Sylvia. Viva la mujer, viva la, our mamas, right? Yeah, viva. All right, next I would like to introduce Trini Gomez. You are very well known and have deep roots and have been highly active in and across our regional communities. You have always placed a high value on education and social economic endeavors and in the collaboration of community groups working towards mutual goals and objectives. Oftentimes, the plight of Latino men dominates the discussion on Latinos in education. However, Latina females in particular face cultural, economic, and educational barriers to not just finishing high school, but entering and completing college. Latina females are often stereotyped into submissive and docile roles, no ambition other than producing children or becoming homemakers. Madrina Trini, we feel you are a good role model for many of our young women. Will you please share about some of the challenges you had to overcome in completing your education throughout your life to achieve your goals? 
Good evening. Throughout my life, edu educated, education and training has helped me achieve my goals. I was raised by my maternal grandmother who was opposed to girls going to further their education. She was, she was old-fashioned and very, very uh, conservative. When she, when she told me I couldn't go on to high school, I wrote to my dad. My, my maternal grandparents lived about 400 miles from my mom and dad. So I wrote to my dad and said, well, Grandma says I can't go to high school. So dad came over and tried to tell her, Trini has to go to high school. I was the oldest of 12. He says, all my kids have to be educated. So she has to go to high school. So my grandmother said, okay, send her to high school. But I don't want her, take her. And that really broke my heart because <laughs> I was kind of spoiled, you know. <laughs> I was raised, you know, with my hat, my gloves, and just, and then to, to go home and share the back seat with 11 other kids, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to high school. My dad was uh, a foreman for the Santa Fe Railroad, and so, and where he was living, where we were living, he got bumped. And the railroad, whenever you run out of, uh, uh, seniority, you get bumped if somebody else wants your place. So he, he moved all the way to a place by Belen, New Mexico. But he had terrible allergies because of the cottonwood trees. And cottonwood trees are all up and down the Colorado River in Arizona. So the doctor told him, you've got to go as far west as you can near the ocean. So my dad started moving. I went to five high schools in four years. Wow. So uh, when, we, when we arrived in San Bernardino, it was in 1943, which was about the same time that I had graduated. When we got here, the superintendent came down to meet us children. The superintendent of the Santa Fe Railroad had carried me when I was a baby. So he, he asked all of us kids different questions. And he asked me if, uh, I, uh, if I could type. And I said, yeah, I can type 85 words a minute. He said, 85 words a minute, you're hired. So we got here like on a Thursday and I was, within a week, I was working. I was hired out as a car clerk at the Santa Fe yard office, which was a little shack underneath the uh, overpass on Mount Vernon, overpass bridge. There was a little bridge, there was a little shack, and that's where the uh, trainmen uh, worked out of, the switchmen, the conductors. It was just a little shack. There were no, no bathrooms for ladies. Mice and uh, rats and uh, cockroaches ran all over <laughs> the, 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 the floor. We had three spittoons. And when I told my mom, mom, nothing but old men, but I'm gonna get good money. So I stayed on, <laughs> I stayed on, and uh, like I said, it didn't, it didn't have any bathrooms for ladies. I had to go around to the, to the uh, breezeway 
And of course, all the conductors, the trainmen, and everything you know that that they did, like whistle and just kind of tease me. And Rats. so I was not going to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So what I would do, I would not drink water, and I would hold it for eight hours. <laughs> so, but there I learned how I learned a lot of things. That was the beginning of my uh, education in, like I would say now, computer. We had our data processing was the entering of the initial numbers and what the car contained into this great big book about this big and about this tall. They sat me in a stool and, and, little, and some books and I would enter all that information there. I also learned the uh, teletype. I learned how to, how to uh, do the uh, card programming. What did they call it? Um, keep punching, <laughs> keep punching. And so I worked nights for a long time. In 1945, I got married. I was 20 years old and I took a leave of absence. I had two children. And my husband, my first husband, Josito Nieto Gomez, decided to go to college. He went to college to the uh, University of Mortuary Science and became a mortician. He became the director of uh, mortuary at Tilly's funeral home on 6th and Mount Vernon. But you know, not, not too many people were dying at that time. This was a young time. <laughs> this was sort of a young area. <laughs> so they were paying him $5, $5 a, a funeral. And he said, you know what? We'll never get any, we'll, we will never uh, afford to have a house. So he went back to school and he went to, the, to Los Angeles to the uh, uh, aeronautics University of Los Angeles, Southwest University of Los Angeles. And uh, he graduated from there and he got a position at Norton Air Force Base in, into the uh, missile program. Uh, in the meantime, you know, we, we began to have, we bought a house. We could afford sending Anna our first. Oh yeah, I went back to work. I went back to work to afford a house. <laughs> so <clears throat> then, <clears throat> well, we had a good life. We were able to send my first child, Ana Nieto Gomez, to college. And, and my, when my son also went to, he started in Valley, they both started in Valley College. And then <clears throat> Ana went to the University of Long Beach. In 1967, it was a very sad time for me because my husband died. <clears throat> and so it left me as a, uh, as a young widow taking care of my, I think she was 85, my mother was 85. She'd been living with me since she was 59. Uh, took care of my mom. My, uh, I'd, had my, I'd had Vanessa, who was, was by that time nine years old. I took care of my mom, Vanessa and I was head of household. And also, just about every other week, I'd go see Anna at Long Beach, and I'd go pick up my son at 
Uh, yeah, Pendleton, Camp Pendleton in San Diego. I'd pick him up every Friday and bring him, bring him home and then take him back every Sunday night. In the meantime, during all these years that I was working for the Santa Fe Railroad, uh, I saw that I needed more education so that I could work days. I had been working nights, nights and weekends and and so I just wanted to see if I could make my life better. So I went back to school and I took shorthand to bring my shorthand up to speed. <clears throat> anyway, I, uh, I was uh, able to take care of my family. And then in 1976, I met Graciana Gomez. We married in 1978. And, um, by that time, he started a, a little newspaper who, uh, he started a little newspaper and I told him, why are, you, why are you hiring so many people? I can do this with one hand tied behind my back. <laughs> he said, I've been working for a big corporations and I can do this. So he said, okay, you're gonna be the, the ma office manager. So I became the office manager and we had the newspaper from 1987 to 19 to 2009. So that's been my life story. I've been going to school practically all my life. I sent Anna to USC, my grandson to USC, my youngest daughter to the University of University of California, in San Diego, and I've had. Good luck to send another granddaughter to Princeton, my other granddaughter to Harvard, and now she is working out of London. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anybody can do it. Just work nights, days, whatever. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Trini. That was a beautiful story, and I'm sure um, you are so proud of your children and your grandchildren. And basically, you set the mold for them, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. that's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Tell them how old she is, yes. if you don't mind. <laughs> she wants to know how old. And she's proud to say that she has lived 93 years today. Bravo. And she still rocks. <laughs> All right, next I would like to introduce our Honorable Josie Gonzalez. Josie Gonzalez, you have proudly have served as the first Latina elected to serve as supervisor for San Bernardino County. And just this afternoon, we found out that covers 24 cities within the county of San Bernardino. Is that correct? Great. Um, 
So she has served this for a number of years and prior to that has served in numerous civic and governmental leadership roles and committees. You have championed issues important to our communities, including public safety, economic development, improved transportation, ending chronic homelessness, and environmental stewardship. You have stated that these key issues are best addressed through co cooperative efforts developed on federal, state, and local levels. So clearly women and Latinas in public service have both continued to break through in politics, are on the rise and shown and have cleared impact on policy program and operations. Today's issues and problems require leaders that have diverse skill sets and innovation and can only come from a diverse ideas and players. Women and Latinas bring those skills, different perspectives and structural and cultural difference to drive effective solution. In short, we change the way solutions are forged in important ways. Madrina Josie, will you please share with us why it is so important that we keep pushing forward? Thank you very much for your very kind introduction. Good afternoon. Uh, honorable assembly member, if there are any other electeds in the house, I don't see you, but I would definitely want to recognize you, honorable madrinas, and all of you students out there in any special organizations, welcome. It is a beautiful opportunity when we are asked to come before you and speak in a manner that might inspire, that might enlighten where you're at in this point in time in your life. It is imperative that we recognize that we must continue to strive in a forward motion because there are those such as the lives and the stories that you've heard and you will hear, such those as the lives in your own families, and such, the, uh, such lives as those in the pages that fill our history books who have sacrificed, who have been told no, who have been refused, who have been rebuted, who have been criticized, ostracized, and proverbially been looked upon as the underdog. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you that before you I stand in the year 2018 as the proverbial underdog because those past underdogs never gave up. They'd be kicked around, they'd be set aside, and it was irrelevant. They got up, and they stood up, and they kept marching forward. And that is the secret formula. That is this super uh, mystical formula of when we look back in history and say, how did so-and-so triumph? How did they get this company to, be, to become so successful? How were they able to come up with this idea and succeed? Where I come from, and I believe where most of our ancestors come from, we come from a place where work trumped Education. Education was for those that had money. Education was a commodity, was a 
was a was something you heard about. You did not participate. And it is that hard work, that four-letter word, work, that ultimately paved the way for those of us today who walk onward, who stand before you in order to be able to, to continue to build upon their hard work. Leadership determined, the, the type of leadership that we need is a varied kind of leadership, and it comes from a varied background. We don't want to all be the same. And leadership determines the kind of progress that ultimately is made. And we need all kinds of progress, therefore you need to see different backgrounds. Having and trusting in one's power of discernment to identify the optimal direction in order to achieve the desired outcomes is important, and you achieve that through your hard work and through education. You must learn to trust your instinct. You must learn to trust your level of accomplishment. You must learn to trust that what you think, that your cognitive thought is what ultimately will get you through. And what do I mean by through? I mean through till the end. Because ladies and gentlemen, God is good. God takes care of all of us. And he gives us the best gift. And the gift is the present. And it is the present, ladies and gentlemen, every single day that is the optimal opportunity for us to continue to move forward and achieve and continue to build our dreams, our hopes, and the future. Very simply put, it is imperative that we continue with an open mind and open eyes, have a broad vision. Because ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you that prejudice is still alive and well. It is just better camouflaged and it takes your mind, not the color of your skin, it takes your mind to be able to get a good grade in your classes, in your tests. It takes a good mind in order to be able to outthink, outprepare, and accomplish said goals that you have set for yourself. This gift that we receive every day is the gift of the sacrifice that has been made over and over and over for hundreds of thousands of minutes and hours and weeks and years. That effort is the effort that opens doors and breaks more glass ceilings. It opens the opportunities for people like us to be CEOs, to be assembly members, to be senators, and with God's grace, maybe one day even president of the, 
of the United States of America. The type of leadership we demonstrate is not in what we say, but in what we do. In our actions, we determine the type of progress we make. If we act dumb, if we say dumb things, if we fail to get up every day with that present that God gives us every day, to do our best, if we fail to do that, we are determining our fate that day. We have to identify and strengthen our own powers of discernment to identify our optimal direction. What do you bring? Where did your family come from? How did your family struggle? What, did, what price did they pay that you today, like myself, are able to attend classes, go to work, live in a beautiful house with God's grace, be able to be a self-sustaining, independent adult. What do you bring to your life today that is a lighter load because of yesterday, but is a beautiful gift for tomorrow? Because ladies and gentlemen, especially you young ones that are here, those of you that are not parents yet, but one day will be, I tell you that right now you may not think about it, but you are carrying the torch. You are carrying the weight of the responsibility so that one day your children can step into your shoes, into our shoes, and be able to lead that torch. No different than the Olympic torch, that we might be able to light the way of the past so that people can see where we come from and light the way for the future that they may not stumble and that they may stand proud because we are part of a nucleus inside an atom that has had a beautiful explosion on society. I am so proud to be a Latina. Quiero que sepan todos ustedes que es un orgullo muy bonito poder hablar nuestra lengua y poder ejercer dentro de nuestro trabajo, de dentro de nuestra profesión, la oportunidad de servir al público con honor, con orgullo y tener el empeño de poder ejercer un ejemplo para todos ustedes. Y por eso tenemos que seguir luchando. Muchas gracias. Thank you. Thank you, Josie, for such an inspirational, motivational response. Okay, next, I would like to introduce Dr. Judy Rodriguez-Watson. Judy Rodriguez-Watson, you are co-president of the SEAL Beach-based Watson Associates Development Corporation and an ardent supporter of education. You co-chaired California State University San Bernardino's Tool for Education fundraising campaign in 2006. The effort raised more than $3 million to equip the university's College of Education building with technology labs, clinics, literacy, and assessment centers. Yeah, that's great. 
that currently serve the students and the Inland Empire community. In 2010, CSUSB named its four-year-old public art program the Judy Rodriguez Watson Public Art Project in honor of your passion and financial support for placing art in open spaces here at Cal State and surrounding community and around the city of San Bernardino. Dr. Rodriguez Watson. Could you please tell us about the role of philanthropy in promoting education, and in particular, your women's touch in the public art spaces? Hola, buenas tardes. I am honored, honored to be here. This is amazing. Um, uh, Papi, thank you for that wonderful um, introduction. Um, I am um, honored to be here with these distinguished, inspiring, accomplished women. I admire and respect you all deeply. Um, I'd like to start actually uh, to speak to my younger self and you young youngins out there who are the future. You are defining the future. And um, as a young, in, to my younger self, I, I, um, I found that I had struggles with reading, a very, had severe dyslexia. I would uh, have to read things three, five times before I was able to absorb um, any lecture, any book, any reading, any material, any statistics, math, science, anything. Uh, they put me in remedial classes. Um, it, uh, did something to my, you know, did something to me inside. And um, however, it also developed my sense of perseverance. I didn't realize that I had this complete, this incredible drive to try hard every day. Um, I uh, was also fortunate to be raised by a very loving and nurturing family. And um, our family, we uh, were very supportive and they had a lot of passion and um, they always encourage us to think big. And, um, and so I feel very fortunate for that. And my daddy was always saying, dale la lucha, and in this case here, también viva la mujer. And he would always say that. I had three sisters and no um, brothers, and my father would say, oh my God, another daughter, yes. <laughs> so, um, as a youth, um, I, um, we didn't have, a, we were, had humble, I had a humble beginning. And, um, but I always had dreams of doing good things um, to help people as much as I possibly could, but I didn't really kind of know how to do it. Um, and I uh, found that my perseverance and heart, my drive to work hard uh, put me in this place where I am now. Now for, not my, now for me as my not so younger side, um, in this area of thinking big and trying to persevere to do the right thing and help others, um, my husband and I um, became acquainted with the university and developed a wonderful relationship and rapport. And uh, we developed the, uh, the Judy Rodriguez Watson program where we do provide public art. If when you drive off the campus, if you look to your right and turn, make a right-hand turn on Campus Drive, you'll see the, the pillars that we have, these beautiful ceramic pillars 
that are about maybe six by six and about 20 feet tall. They were um, um, a, uh, a design that was uh, developed by the art department uh, under the umbrella of Dr. Uh, Richard Johnson. And um, it was uh, remarkable in that the students, the, the master students, worked with the, uh, the, the, the professors and they went to a, a, through a curricula to develop these, these pieces. And, um, but it also not only gave them an education in how to create art, they went through the process of designing the work, going through a semester of that. And then the next semester showing us maquettes of what they'd like to do. And then we went through an art jury. So it was quite a process. And so out there is, is you know, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from these wonderful students. And um, so I hope you get a chance to look at those. Also in the city, we have these wonderful spheres that the master students created. And, um, and along with a, a few other things that I'm kind of proud of and hopefully you'll get a chance to see. Um, additionally, uh, Patti mentioned that we uh, developed the Watson Literacy Center. That is one of the areas that I'm most passionate and happy of and thrilled to be a part of. As I mentioned, I, dyslexia was a very, a very difficult um, issue for me. And um, with this program, we help children from K through 12 in their reading. They have one-on-one -on -one exposure and they've, some of the kids have grown when they start the program, they uh, advance one, two, and three grades up going through this process, which is extraordinary, and I'm very proud of that. Um, now, I, um, in relaying these, these, these stories to you, I hope that it, I can impart to you and inspire, um, considering the challenge that, challenges that you may have, um, to, you know, roll up your sleeve, dale la lucha, work hard, think big, and, and just go for it. And um, I, um, I am optimistic about, you know, seeing these, these kids out here, and especially just within the last few weeks, watching these kids in Florida, and then the Me Too uh, movement. There's a revolution going around, and it's happening, all, that's affecting the entire world. And um, I, um, I see, you know, uh, particularly as it relates to the Me Too movement, I see women are really thinking about what they're saying and, and how they're interacting with other people. I see respect, a different sort of respect. It's, it's, it's tangible to what's going on now. And um, I, uh, I, and then also to see women with women, how we're working together and trying to raise each other up instead of the other way around. And, um, and it's, it's wonderful to see and it's wonderful to, to see it, um, this movement, this revolution uh, affect the entire world. Um, thank you for the honor of being here. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, in closing, I'd like to um, um, express my sincere honor in being able to speak here, and I thank you very much for having me.
thank you, Dr. Judy Rodriguez-Watson, for sharing <coughs> your, your contributions in the beautiful arts throughout our campus and city, as well as the Literary Center. I was mentioning to her earlier that uh, through the Federal Work Study Program that I administer here on campus, we employ approximately 50 uh, Cal State students to support the Literary Center, and it has been very successful for the last 10 years. So yes. thank you. 10 year anniversary. Yeah. Ten -year anniversary. <laughs> okay, next to my left, I would like to introduce Dr. Ellen Rihohatz Clark. Um, Ellen Clark uh, is a was a professor at Metria of Bilingual Education at the University of Texas San Antonio. You hold a PhD in curriculum instruction, a master's in by I'm going to put my glasses on, Bicultural Bilingual Studies and a Bachelor's in Elementary Education and Early Childhood Education. You have embarked on dozens of successful, creative, multicultural, educational, cooperative learning, collaborative literature base, and curricular focused projects, programs, interventions throughout your career. You have received numerous awards, distinctions, and Hall of Fame inductions. I have a two-part question for you, okay? So the first part, Dr. Clark, what are some of the challenges and benefits you have experienced as a Chicana Latina university professor and pioneer? And then the next part of the question is, uh, what can and should be done to create more Latina school teachers, counselors, more Latinas in masters and doctorate programs, more Latina tenure Tenderline College and university professors and institutional leaders across the pipeline. Thank you. Buenas tardes. So good to be here and absolutely delightful. I'm sorry all the young people left, but great to see everybody that is still here. Me encanta venir a California. It's always nice to see an environment that's different than mine in San Antonio, Texas, where I was born and I'm gonna die. <laughs> so what I wanna tell you, I'm gonna answer the second question first. How do we increase the pipeline for teachers, counselors, tenure track professor? And that is to have more people that look like us teaching at universities, more people that look like us in positions of power to hire people like us and more people at the, at the president's level to give vision or to articulate the vision of the communities so that more people are represented. Why do I say that? My area of research is identity. So one thing I've learned over my 40 years as a professor at UT is that identity is a singular factor that will make students successful if it's an elementary school, middle school, high school, and at the universidad. So identity is based upon who am I in terms of my ethnic identity. And I learned this from a, some other guy from California, Amado Padilla from Stanford, who set me off on this quest when he said, 
In order to learn, you have to know who you are. And I always thought it was the other way around. But long story short, in all my years of research, I have found out that sabiendo que quien soy yo, fue la, 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 la cosa más importante para mi carrera. So, what are my challenges? And I thought, I don't need to tell you my challenges. We heard them all this morning. The number of us is what, this much? The number of, of college uh, presidents is 2.9. In Texas, we only have one Latina, one Latina as a president of a university. So those are the dismal facts. I hate to deal in that, but then I, I, I learned, so gracias, Enrique. I learned that our, today, our stories are important. We do have to share our stories. I'm going to be 77. So one thing that I have learned is that I stood on shoulders, and I, as short as I am, I am the shoulders for you to stand on. And you will be the shoulders for the next group that comes around. So what were my challenges? Well, I got a PhD late in life. Back in, back in the 70s, there was no university around in San Antonio, so I would have to drive on a weekly basis to Austin, Texas, to UT Austin. That's two hours away, so I'd drive in the morning, come back at night. The crock pot was my best friend, as were my parents, because they helped me take care of my two daughters. And so, um, the challenges were many. I remember going to defend my dissertation. My committee was all what? White males. So I invited a white female, because that was the only other, there was no Latinas there, to, to sit in and just to listen to my defense. So one of the old, old white males asked me a question. Yo no, yo no tengo pelos en la lengua, I can answer. <laughs> I can answer anything, but you know, and she said something very important earlier. I thought about it and I said, okay, do I do this? You know, I can talk it, or is this a trick? Is this a trick question? And believe it or not, it was what? A trick question. So my white women, a female professor says, Barney, you know there's no answer to that question. But you know what that taught me? It taught me one thing. I would never, ever do that to a doctoral student going up to defend a dissertation. But it also told me another thing. He, he was saying, I don't want you in my circle. That was it. I applied for a job. What happens? Don't get it. Da, 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 da. Long story short. I filed suit against the University of Texas system, along with two other people, and of course, one in our favor, except that I was not too smart. I could have gone for a three-year salary, and I thought it's a principle of the thing. So I, uh, I told my co two other colleagues, we're going to do $1,000 a year. So we ended up winning $3,000. Oh, well, it paid for my daughter's wedding. That was, you know, that was the... <laughs> the other thing that I found out through that lesson of having to file suit is that there's an institutional culture.
So, but I'm telling you that you, there are going to be PhDs, and I hope that everybody in this room will be one. There's room for all of us and more than what's in this room. So even if it's not an idea you've had, you better dadgum quickly think, I might be ready to be a, UT, a, a university professor. So the institutional culture is one that we have to learn what it is. So when I finally get a tenure track position, 10 years after my PhD, wow. I'm told, you have to write a book. And I'm going, wait a minute. I hadn't heard that one before. I thought we had to write referee journals. And this morning you heard um, Julie say it took three referee journals. Well, in my institution, thinking they were tier one, it was 12 articles a year. So the, professor, or the dean who told me, you don't need to write articles, write a book. Books don't count. So advice for you that are young, PhD, Students, don't write books until you retire like I am. <laughs> write refereed journals. And so if it's 12 of them a, a year now, it's going to be a lot more by the time you, you get up there. So learn what that institutional culture is. Know what the answers are so that you can pay your own way and also look to see what people like me, the shoulders you're standing on, learn from their track. The other is, if you're told that is not legitimate research, give me a break, baby. Anything is legitimate research. And what I found out that the most important research was that that dealt with my comunidades. So what were the elements that were striking us? And those are the things that we needed to study. So, very short, learn the institutional culture, get a PhD, find mentors. Mentors are the ones that are going to help you, even though nobody else looks like you. So of course, I was the only Latina in my whole department, in my whole college for a long, long time. But that's okay, because one thing I found out is I know who I am. Yo sé quién soy. Yo soy la gran tamalera de San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> and, and I have a, a crown. I have a crown to prove it. <laughs> and I've written, you know, seven textbooks, over 300 referee journals. So I, I'm A1, you know, type one. And, but my most popular, most read books are the ones on cultural studies that my comunidad reads and everybody's learning from him. So my next book, next time I see you, I'll be La Gran Panadera <laughs> because my, my next book in, in 2019 is going to be on pan dulce. Did you know that there's seven, 2,000 names for cada pan, de dulce, pan dulce? 2,000 names. So there's more than just conchas. There's also nalgas, in case you didn't know. <laughs> and, and you think I'm kidding. I am having the most fun researching my pan dulce book. So be on the lookout for that one. <laughs>
but but you know what? It's gonna have a it's gonna have an impact because I'm taking the cultural wealth, and think of this, the cultural wealth of our community and documenting it. So that's your purpose for new PhDs, for you that are going to be teachers, is to know that you must develop the kinsoi in your, in your students for, for success. The other is that I'm a yaya. A yaya is Chinese for grandmother, it's Greek for grandmother, and it's my, my name. So I have two daughters, both of them engineers, and they were 0.5% of the Latina engineers when they finished school. And of course, they made a hell of a lot more money than I did as a tenured professor. I have four granddaughters, like you said, puras mujeres except for my husband and our two Dalmatians. <laughs> but my four granddaughters, the oldest one, I mean, hold on to your hat. I can brag, right? I can brag. She is getting her PhD in nuclear fusion engineering at MIT. You can clap. <laughs> and, and that's the other thing I learned about stories is that we have to brag. I have another one who is at Princeton and getting her engineering degree. And then I have a 15-year-old that's gonna end up in engineering. And then I have one just like me. She's in humanities. So it makes it all well worthwhile. But what I do know is that my daughters and my granddaughters would not be here if it wasn't for me, if it wasn't for my mother, if it wasn't for my grandmother, my grandmothers that I never met but heard about. But I also know that they're products of public school education, good public school education, of good teachers who understood creativity and the development of inquisitive thinking, and that they're products of being Mexico-Americanas, or as I tell them, yo soy Chicana, yo soy Mexicana, with a small M, not a big M, because I'm not born in Mexico. And I am a Latina. So you need to be able, that's what I tell my granddaughters, you need to be able to articulate who you are. Somebody says, where are you from? Honey, that question means you're not from here. So you say, what you know. Do not take a label given to you by somebody else, but you learn all the labels and you select the labels that describe you. So gracias, adelante, and have a, I am looking forward, forward, forward to seeing what all of you are gonna become. And remember, you don't have to reinvent the tire, the, the wheel. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can call all of us here, for we are the shoulders, and we are the ones that will support you. Mil gracias. Thank you, Dr. Clark. I'm looking so forward to your pan dulce. Your next book on Pandulsa. I am the proud owner uh, of an autograph edition of her tamale book, book on tamales, so highly recommend it. 
Okay, next I would like to introduce Lillian Esther Hernandez. You have served as the Regional Executive Director for the Parent Institute for Quality Education, also known as PICE, for many years and responsible for establishing and maintaining working relationships with local university presidents, community leaders, foundations, corporations, school superintendents, principals, and other representatives. You have been instrumental in successfully leading, sustaining, and expanding parent leadership programs, serving multiple communities and in multiple languages. You, also, you are also both an immigrant and a church pastor with a tremendous passion for helping others and have worked to empower women to overcome obstacles. Being that you work to empower women to overcome obstacles and work with Latina mothers, most serving as a primary care provider in the family, all at different acculturation and educational levels. Madrina Lillian, with respect to various factors related to parental involvement and knowledge of schooling, tell us about some of the activities and barriers in greater parental involvement experience by Latina mothers' roles with respect to instilling the value, the value and importance of education and expectations of higher education, be it parent-child or parent-school relationships. Buenas tardes. First of all, and I wanna say thank you to Dr. Murillo because in 2015, I had the opportunity to become the madrina, along with Padrino Jorge Hines. And uh, it is for me an honor to be here this afternoon, along with these beautiful ladies who really and truly represent the Latina mujer. Right? All right? Yes. I am an immigrant lady. I cannot say that I'm a first generation, because my two boys are first generation. So I came to this country with my degree under my arm, knowing a little bit of English with the English accent. But I always say this, that not because I speak with accent, that means that I think with accent, but the accent is there. It comes out. But then I heard someone says, and who in California doesn't have an accent, right? So first of all, I would like to acknowledge that a Latin, Latina mother a Latina woman, it's someone that treasures in her heart what is known as the American dream. By the way, the American dream is not only American, because we the Latinas, we the, the Hispanic women, from Tijuana to La Patagonia, you know, we have come to this country and we have come uh, with that dream that also uh, we believe that the dream is ours. Our mothers did. Our aunties did. Our abuelas did. So are friends. So are mine. I strongly believe that our kids could do better because then we as parents, you know, the, the Latina mamas, the ones that have to come to this country, the ones that immigrated to, to this country and did not know how to navigate the school system, which is, which is very hard for those of us that came to this country, uh, not knowing how the school system functioned, let me tell you, 
It's like a humongous monster. It's complex. It's intimidating. Right? There are so many obstacles in the way for, for mothers or for a familia Latina who just arrived to this country. But when we, the ones that already experienced some of the years and we learned the necessary tools, we are the ones that could help other mothers to, to help their children to succeed in life. I don't know many mothers who do not value education. I don't know many mothers who do not encourage their children to, to by saying, mijito, uh, be good, uh, behave. Or, or mothers who would say, um, and this is constant in our, in our Latino household, uh, portate bien, mijita, uh, estudia, mijita, echale ganas porque tú sí puedes. Am I correct? Right, that th those are phrases that are very common in, our, in, the in the Latina familias. Well, let me tell you this. And this is uh, being working for Pique for so many years. Um, I have discovered this, that once parents come to the Pique program and they learn all they need to know, then those parents, they understand, you know, how the school system function, what is FAFSA, what is the college admission requirements, what is the difference between the SAT and the SATs, what are the difference between the uh, different universities uh, system, community college, the, UC, the UCs, the, the uh, uh, private colleges. Once the parents have the necessary tools, those mothers become empowered and start telling the, the students, you know, their kids, you can do it. Because at that time, parents have the necessary information to push students. I wanted to, to say two things tonight, uh, this afternoon. With the Latina side bicultural, we are bilingual. Some of us, like these beautiful ladies, don't carry accent. Some of you might have a slightly accent. Other ones, you know, mid-accent. But some of us, very strong accent, right? But once a mother, it's empowered. Once a mother know, you know, that it doesn't have the fear of the unknown, that mother, it's able, capable to tell their children, you know, take advantage because there is opportunities for you. The second thing, and I want to end with this uh, to all of you, is that the Latina mothers that already know the knowledge should help other mothers to help their children to succeed in life. It is amazing to see mothers that work two, three jobs, that get up at early in the morning and they come late home, they're providers, but they have this message for their kids. Mijito, échale ganas. Hijita, échale ganas porque tú puedes. We came to this country because we heard that was, this was the land of the opportunities. But when parents are empowered, when they have the necessary tools, then they can take advantage of every single opportunity that is available out there. Thank you. Thank you, Lillian, and I love your beautiful accent. I wish I had. Okay, lastly, we I would like to introduce the Honorable Eloise Gomez Reyes. Your volunteer work and leadership in the community started long before you became an attorney and long before 
holding your current elected seat as member of California Assembly. You received your law degree from Loyola Law School and not long after became the first Latina to open her own law office in the Inland Empire. As a young girl, you struggled alongside your family, working every summer in the fields, picking onions, grapes, working hard to earn money to pay for school, clothes, and supplies. You have credited those early experiences for providing the strong work ethic that defines you today and help to appreciate the work of so many others who even today must work long and hard hours to support their families. Your life, career, and passion are defined as helping others less fortunate and being of service to those who have needed protection and assistance. You have assisted injured workers, including workers' compensation and personal injury, unselfishly dedicating much time, treasures, and talent in helping the indigenous. As we know, Latinas face formal structural barriers to entry and success in labor market and workforce. And we are also incredibly entrepreneurial as the number rate of Latino-owned businesses has increased eight times that of men-owned business yet. Yet progress has been extremely slow and Latinas are faring much more poorly than their counterparts from other ethnic racial groups still earning less than 60 cents for every dollar. They also have the least access to health care of any group of women and are still more likely to live in poverty as single head of households. Madrina Eloise, what are some of the initiatives currently challenging the status quo either in labor movements or among state level leaders in helping women and Latinas better achieve economic security and social mobility? Thank you, Patricia. Wow, what a group of women, my goodness. Amazing, just absolutely love this. One of the things that I think that all the women have in common, and I was, I was listening to the stories, many of the stories I already knew, but some were new stories to me. What was amazing to me is that every one of the women here, we all had a dream. We wanted to do something, we wanted to be somebody, but not just for ourselves. It was to be able to help the next group that would come after us. It was to, to teach the younger women, the students. It was to teach the parents. It was to be able to do the philanthropical work, to, to file the lawsuits that would win. Now, Trini did not mention, but Trini, weren't you the first woman at Santa Fe? She sure was. It was all men there. She told you there were no, no bathrooms for women. That's because she was the first woman to work at Santa Fe. Yes. Now, what's special about the fact that we're all madrinas is that if we're the madrinas of LEAD, that means we're all comadres. Please meet all of my best friends, my comadres. Most of you know what a comadre is. Well, I will tell you that um, some of the things that we are trying to do since arriving, for me, in the state assembly is making sure that the laws that we pass and the comments that are made in that state capital reflect our values. Some of the areas that are of greatest importance are early childhood education. 
If we know that a child's brain is developed and those early years are the most important, it seems so simple to me. Invest the money so that we can get that education for the children. If we say that by third grade, if a child is not reading at third grade level, there's a greater chance that that child is gonna end up on the, in the pipeline to the prison system invest the money so that by third grade every child is reading at third grade level. These seem like such simple solutions and yet we're still arguing about them. We're still talking about, our, we're still trying to convince our colleagues about making sure that when we put together our budget that it includes that money that is needed for those areas. We shouldn't have to be doing that, but that is what we're doing. Community colleges, it, it's, as some of you may know, I started at a community college. I did have a full ride to USC from, from high school, uh, but my dad being my dad, and I love him dearly, <laughs> said, mijita, donde vas a vivir? Where are you going to live? In the dorms, dad, in Los Angeles. No, mijita, you're not leaving the house unless you're married or you're going to the convent. So. <laughs> I did go to San Bernardino Valley College, and I got my AA degree in two years. I was on a mission, worked up to three jobs while I was going to Valley, then told my dad, okay, dad, here's my AA, that's as far as I can go. They're holding my scholarship. I'm going to USC, andale pues, mijita, la bendición, and of course he cried, I cried, but there I went on to USC. Uh, was a resident advisor at USC, and Worked really hard, worked another jo two jobs in addition to being a resident advisor. Got through that and then on to law school. Now, my roommate in law school, I was smart, my roommate worked in financial aid. <laughs> so I said, Rebecca, tell me about all the scholarships available. And she would tell me about um, all the scholarships. And there were many organizations looking for Latinas and Latinos because there were so few of us. And sometimes that's what we have to do. I tell students, go to Harvard, go to Yale. They don't have Latinos there. When I was at USC, they offered me, again, a full ride where I would, because I, I wanted to go to law school. They said, you can go get your, uh, your MBA and your law degree in four years. And wow. I said, leave home again? My dad would never let me. So I didn't. I don't regret it because staying here in my community, this is the community I love. Plus, I met my husband, Frank. This is, this, this. <laughs> so what are some of the things we've done? Community colleges, thanks to my colleague, Miguel Santiago, the first year of community college is now going to be free. The, the governor signed that this last year. I, I'm very pleased to tell you that I had introduced legislation that would provide $5 million for our bilingual education, for our teachers, because many of them had to get recertified. And there were many who were doing the job of a bilingual teacher but weren't getting paid because they didn't have the certification. Well, I found out while I was up in Sacramento is that in addition to having your bill going, it's on its way, going through committees, you also have the, the option of requesting a budget item. Okay, how do I do that? We put in a request for $5 million. 
Lo and behold, guess what the governor signed? A budget that included my $5 million for bilingual education teaching. I also introduced last year a bill that would provide equity plans for our LGBTQ and our homeless students. We do have equity plans at community colleges for other protected uh, groups, but those are two groups that had not had any protection. That went through the committees. I, you know, you have to go through the whole process, and the governor signed that bill as well. This year, my poor staff, they worked so hard. I, I um, was told that we can introduce a total of 50 bills in two years. Seems like you know, nobody's going to do that. <laughs> my first year, I did 19. And of my 19 bills, nine of those were signed by the governor into law. Uh, in addition to that, we also had a number of House resolutions that the governor signed. This year, I have introduced 26 bills. I'm very proud of all of my bills. They're all like my babies. And we're going to work them through all the way to the end. One of those has to do with student financial aid, helping our dreamers make sure that they are applying for the FAFSA application, making sure that they know every option available to them when it comes to, to, to funding, specifically with the California Dream Act application and others like that. I've also joined as a joint author with my colleague, um, Jose Medina from Riverside. He has introduced a bill that will require that ethnic studies be taught in the high school as a required course. Yes. Now, Judy, I really appreciate that you talked about the Me Too movement. We're in the middle of all of this. And I have the distinct honor of having been appointed by the Speaker of the Assembly to sit on the Joint Committee on sexual harassment with our senators, our uh, assembly members. There's a group of eight of us who will now have, we've been taking testimony and we will be putting together the policies and procedures for the state of California employees regarding sexual harassment. I'm very proud that I get to be part of that as well. So while I've been taking, we've been listening to all of this testimony, I realized that if you have been sexually harassed, you have only one year to file your claim. And for many, especially women, some, some people tell me, well, Eloise, there are men that are also sexually harassed. That is true. 87% of those who are sexually harassed are women. So oftentimes we talk about the women. So the bill that I introduce will provide not one year, but three years to file your lawsuit or file your claim for sexual harassment. It, I'm really proud to be part of this freshman class in the State Assembly. In this class, we added five Latinas. We doubled the number of Latinas in the State Assembly this last term. And what's what, the best part of it, personally, is that I'm a freshman. I'm part of the freshman class. And the truth is, it's been a long time since I've been a freshman. So I absolutely love being part of that freshman class. And because of my 35 years of experience as an attorney, 
there's so much more that I get to bring in. Now I have younger colleagues, much younger. They get to bring in a different experience. We all bring something to the table. If you're younger, you get to bring those experiences that you're experiencing right this minute. So your opinion is very, very valuable. If you're older and you've had other experiences, you get to bring that to the table. It's the diversity that is key to anything that we do for the state of California. So I'm very proud to be part of that diversity. But that diversity, even at 10, it accounts for only 8% of the entire state legislature that are Latinas. We have no state senators right now. We did at one time have up to four state senators. We have zero right now. We do have a few who are running and we're really looking forward to having them win so that we can include them as part of our troop. Now, I, I will tell you also that um, having the voice of our millennials and Generation X is extreme, or Generation Z, what is it? Z, X, all of it. <laughs> One of the seminars we put together was Dream Big IE. And this was specifically for our millennials, for the younger people. We wanted them to tell us, because sometimes as, as we get older, you know, we, we understand the institutional rules and, you know, we, we work within the rules. But by having the younger people come, they have no, 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 border, no borders, they have no limits. And they came up with some magnificent ideas. And I will tell you that one of those, I'm really proud of what they did. And so because my, our, our uh, county supervisor, Josie Gonzalez, is a supervisor in my district, Senator Connie Leva is a senator in my district, it's one of those projects that now the three of us are working with the community to make sure that that comes to fruition. It's those partnerships that count so, so much. I want to, to end today by sharing with you uh, one of the things that, that uh, it's a privilege that I get to have, and that is that as a state assembly member, I get to speak for the state of, state of Sacramento, I was going to say. I get to speak for the state of California. I get to speak for the state assembly. I get to introduce resolutions that all of my colleagues get to vote on, and oftentimes many of them get to speak on. So on March 7th, I introduced Assembly Concurrent Resolution 194, which declares the last week of September, uh, the last week of March as lead week. And I'm very proud to share copies of this. We did bring extra copies. So I thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here with you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, to share just a little of what I've learned. And I've got to tell you, I'm looking forward to having all of you up in Sacramento. Thank you. Wow, I'm honored. This is a, a panel of a wealth of information that they shared with me, with all of us today. Um, before we, um, we're gonna take a couple of questions from the audience in a few minutes. 
Um, but I just wanted to share that it has been a, an extreme and a great honor to stand within these beautiful Latino women. Normally, um, well, along with Enrique, and I'm gonna say Rob too, um, we're his long-term um, lead committee members, of which usually I'm in the background, in the back, in the back in the background with Rob telling, you know, basically telling Enrique what to do. But um, <laughs> normally I would not do this. Um, I, I was a little, I was a little scared and frightened, but um, like I said, I have been, it gives me great honor to be among these women and all their accomplishments that they have done. And I'm proud to stand and sit among you. Okay, so next um, we're going to take a couple of questions from the audience before conclusions this afternoon. Barbara Babcock, Judy, I love you to death. And of course, Judy, Josie. Assemblymember Eloise Reyes, you must talk about what you did for our Fine Arts Commission and for our city with the Rosa Parks statue. It made such a difference. I thank you and tell us what you did. Thank you so much, Barbara. Um, the city of San Bernardino, uh, very specifically the ba Black Culture Foundation, for about 10 years has been trying to raise money for a Rosa Parks statue uh, at the state building. The state building has, was already named after Rosa Parks. And so they called, a number of people reached out and asked if I could help them provide the funding we found out how much was still needed. And just as I lobbied for my five million in the, the budget for the bilingual education um, training, I also put that amount, the amount that was needed for the Rosa Parks statue, and the governor signed it. So we got the rest of the funding, we got the statue. Um, it is now, we had the unveiling just a few months ago. It was one of the biggest events in our community with over 3,000 people in attendance. I was very proud of that. Thank you for bringing it up, Barbara. Thank you. We have time for another question. Hello, my name is Marina Jimenez. I work with the San Bernardino County Superintendent of Schools Office. About a month ago, I was attending a conference in San Diego, and one of the speakers really um, asked this question or made this statement and it really had me thinking and I wanted to see who would like to respond to this it was diversity is is being invited to the dance but inclusion is actually being invited to dance what would anybody like to what does that mean to you how can we overcome how can we be included in that choreography Have you ever been to a wedding or to a party <laughs> where everybody gets up and dances? Yes, the so La, you look la Linea. That's right, you look Remember around la and the, the, you, you're waiting for someone to take you out. Sometimes you just go out and you invite somebody else, some of your comadres, to go out and dance <laughs> with you. That's very true. Thank you. Anybody else? I think that's the answer. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the answer is you ask someone to dance or you make someone Dance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we have time for one more question. I'm going to speak on behalf of the men that are All right. scared to get up here. First off, I want to thank you for uh, honoring my mother, 
who's no longer with us, but just the fact she's here with us. I'm gonna cry. Um, my question is for the professora. How, or anyone who wants to, wants to answer the question, how uh, as men can we continue to support our women uh, in all the work that they do as my, my being allies? I have my own you know, thoughts about it, but I wanna hear uh, your thoughts about how we can continue to be allies, not only allies, but activists in, in the current movement, but, but in general. How, how can we support you um, and women in general? Well, I was just gonna tell you, I think you can answer that question uh, in terms of what men can do. But having worked with, as we all have had experiences, that this has not been part of our, our, our socialization sometimes. I had students who would have to study locked up in the bathroom or husbands who would tear up the books and we, because they didn't want them to study. So I guess the answer to your question is that men should speak with men and teach men what that, what, how they can support uh, the women in the family. I think someone this morning, I learned a lot on this session. I, lo I loved somebody said um, that the man is the head of the household and I was groaning. I thought, what the hell does that mean, you know? <laughs> and then she said, because women are the center of the home. So I think you men, it's your responsibility to do this now. We have so many years done that. We need to take care of ourselves and take care of other women and to ensure that the women who do have husbands who understand take that message to other men who will listen to the men. That's a very simplistic answer. That's my answer after yakansada and all, of, all that stuff. So somebody else I'm sure has a better answer. Second answer. All right. Let's see how we approach this. I believe that the male gender in the modern society must continue to be a man, to be a man, and to be the man. It is imperative that we recognize, especially within our culture and other cultures, that we honor and respect the men in our lives. If we are to enable a balance to take place, in today's world, the male must be strong enough, must be man enough to understand that his place is sacred. It is important as the head of the family. And the man must be kind and must be understanding and must be faithful to good, positive 
character values. And the fact that the men have to quit running away and leaving their children behind. And that there has to be a line drawn in every society, in every culture. And, it's, and it is that we will respect each other and we will honor each other. And that when love isn't as healthy as it should be, you go back to that respect. You go back to honoring. And it's not about how much you can cuss someone out or how much you can put someone down, whether it's a man to a woman or a woman to a man. It's how much can you learn to understand that life is extremely difficult and that it is by having an open mind and an open heart and standing still when the storm comes around because there are many, many storms. The problem is that in the midst of those storms, people forget to hang on and they let go and they let their children go and they let their women go. And, it, and all of that has forced women to become as competitive and as driven in order to be able to get our children ahead. That barn door and that horse left a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. I love the fact that you asked this question we now, we as women, need to remind all good men, all men, even the bad ones, because they're out there, honey, you know that, that if you want a good woman, you got to be a good man. And God is always first. Thank you. Thank you. Enrique? You know, one of the things, I, when we were in the protest for our DACA students because of what number 45 had done, and we were all, you know, doing all the protests, one of my DACA students came to me and said, the best way you all can help is to allow us to be the spokespeople. Don't, don't pretend to speak for us. And I think the answer would hold true for the women that women, we're strong, we, we can do anything. And as you, as you try to take a role with the women, just remember that the women can lead and sometimes, oftentimes, will lead. So just like my DACA students tell me, don't pretend to speak for me, then I would say the same thing. Okay, make sure everything's good. Friends and colleagues, uh, it's time for us to sign off now. Um, today we're happy to report that we've stood strong once again, our ninth year, um, and we've exceeded even our own expectations. Um, thank you to each and every one of you, especially those who stayed to the end. Of course, our, uh, our media folks, and we're still online, right? We're still online. Um,
Today was yet another grain of sand. Como se dice en español, un granito más de arena, right? So uh, at this point, I want to remind all the lead planners, lead volunteers, any padrinos that are out there, friends and colleagues, to join us for our annual group picture. So we can take our picture up here. And, um, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to our... Uh, to uh, Aaron and Jeanette, so to sign off there. Y con eso nos despedimos for now. Corín Colorado, este cuento se ha acabado. Hasta la próxima. Gracias. Gracias.